so glad that you're here this morning, that you would join us for worship, and if you're joining us by television or online, we're thrilled that you would worship with us. For the last several weeks, I've been preaching through the Gospel of Mark as we've gone through a series that we've called King Jesus. Almost a year ago, I was in Israel, and I was standing outside those ancient walls of the old city, and I remember this particular day, we were there along the path uh, that, was, uh, that was first century path, where Jesus and his disciples would have walked, and uh, we were remembering on this bright sunny day what it might have been like on the day of Pentecost after, after Jesus' ascension, where all of a sudden the the uh, Jews from all over the world are gathered there, coming in for pilgrimage because of this special time to go to the temple. And as they walk by, they hear voices speaking in their native tongues from the countries where they're coming from. And they're speaking clearly. And they start to inspect, like, who is this? Why are they here in Jerusalem speaking like this? And they find out it's a bunch of Galileans who should in no way have known their language. They weren't, wouldn't have studied it. And they're preaching about this man. And they're prophesying. And the 11 guys who kind of were the early founders of the movement were there. And one of them stands up. And possibly right there where I was. In Jerusalem, outside the, the old walls, the walls of the old city. Peter stands up and he begins to preach. And then he gets to a part in the sermon where he says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. This Jesus, the Nazarene, was a man pointed out to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And as he concluded the sermon, we know there were 3,000 there who responded. They were baptized and the church began. Well, this sermon is essentially the outline for the Gospel of Mark. Mark opens his Gospel by speaking about the beginning of Jesus' ministry. This good news about this man who's come, who is God. And then he follows Jesus' Jesus' miraculous life according to how Peter had taught him or had told him what happened. And what was hidden during Jesus' public ministry is made public in the words here to clarify the basis of the Christian faith in Jesus. Jesus did not just come as the most interesting person who's ever lived, but Jesus came as King. King Jesus is the greatest life that's ever lived and it's the most consequential for your life and for mine. For helping us to understand ourselves and how we fit in this world. Last week we looked at a story that was interrupted as King Jesus demonstrated his power over sickness. King Jesus, our healer, he healed a woman who had been dying for 12 years from an illness. And she reaches out and grabs the hem of his garment and she's miraculously healed in that moment. And then Jesus goes from there. He, and he uh, goes to uh, Jairus or Jairus' home where his daughter, who was 12 years old, has now died. And he breathes life to her, and she's raised to new life. Mark goes on to describe how Jesus remained in Galilee to minister and preach. He goes into Nazarene, uh, Nazareth, his hometown. He's kind of rejected there. Then he comes back, according to Mark's, kind of the way he puts it. He sends out the 12 disciples to preach. 
and to do wonders. They go out, they return, they hear about John the Baptist's death, and that's described in Mark's gospel. And then kind of close to the end of chapter 6, King Jesus provides miraculously by feeding 5,000 men with only two fish and five loaves of bread. And it's after this that Jesus walks on the water. Then he goes to another town. He's performing miracles. They've heard about this woman, so they're all reaching out for his garment to be healed. And that's where we come to Mark 7, which is where we'll be this morning. So let me read to you Mark 7, verses 1 through 5. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper, plate, copper pots. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? It's here the Pharisees demonstrate that tradition trumps truth. And they believe it was the unclean things that they took into their body that made a person impure. And we're going to see in this passage that King Jesus challenges this and flips tradition and rituals on its head by teaching truth. And this is the truth that Jesus preaches. It is not what goes into our bodies that makes a person unclean, but what comes out of the heart. So let's begin by looking at the tradition of the day. The Pharisees and the scribes were the religious leaders, or were some religious leaders from Jerusalem. And they were defenders of tradition. They, uh, we, verse 1 makes clear that their headquarters was in Jerusalem, so it's there that they hear about something happening in the Galilee. So they go to the Galilee to find out what's happening. There's this man, Jesus, and they're just really irritated because Jesus seems to be a rule breaker. And the Pharisees are, first of all, rule followers. Now, I think we sometimes misrepresent what the Pharisees were, or at least we misunderstand it. They were not necessarily the power brokers in ancient Jerusalem. The truth is that the Pharisees were really struggling to kind of impose their view of morality or their vision for uh, total obedience to the law on the Jews in ancient Israel. Their arch nemesis, so the reason maybe that they kind of rose up in Palestine, was that the Hellenistic Jews were there. And they were maybe kind of like the secular humanist of the day. They were kind of rejecting the old traditions. They were kind of paving their own way forward. And it, the, the Pharisees are kind of the opposite of that. So the Pharisees and the scribes, they show up on the scene, and what do they notice? They notice that these guys are there, and they're eating, but they're not washing their hands before they do that. Now, everyone else on the scene, what do they notice? That Jesus is healing the sick. That he's raising the dead to life. That he's delivering people who have been, uh, 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 they have demons. And he's setting them free. He's providing new hope. He's teaching truth. He's doing miraculous things. And I'm sure they can't get over the fact that he just fed 5,000 men with five loaves of bread and two fish. And in the end, there's 12 baskets of bread left over. And they're like, can you believe this? 
How did we become so fortunate that we got to live during this moment? And what do the Pharisees notice? I can't believe they ate all that bread without washing their hands. That's what they're saying. That they're just irritated by that thing. And you want to say, well, what's the big deal? Now, I know that some of you are like, oh, I get it, because you are hand sanitizer obsessed germaphobes. And you're thinking, for the first time in my life, I have split loyalties now. Is it Jesus or the Pharisees at this point? Well, this was not primarily, though, about hygiene. They were not saying, oh, man, their, their hands are so germy. I can't believe they would do this like some of you do. It was more about ritual, the idea of ceremonial cleansing. So the Pharisees were enamored with the Levitical system of cleanliness. The Levitical system of cleanliness, these are the guidelines that um, said if you touched a dead animal or a human body, or if you developed some sort of infectious skin disease that created rashes or boils or sores, um, or if you come in contact with mildew on your clothing or in your house or in the furnishings of your home, or if you ate meat from an animal that was declared unclean, if you have any sort of discharge in your body, then you are considered ritually impure. You are stained, you are defiled, you are unclean. And you, because of that, you couldn't enter the temple. So now you're cut off from the people, from being able to worship God. So it's a serious thing. And it's particularly important because uncleanness was transferable. It was a communicable disease. So if I am unclean and I touch this clean thing, it's now unclean. Or I touch you and you're clean, now you're unclean. Or if I touch your house, so it is a very serious thing, so they cut people off. So they're not caught up on the fact that the guys are not washing their hands and they're eating germy things. They, it's not that. That's what you, you don't want the germs. These guys were obsessed with the idea of ritual purity. And these ritual customs were primarily in place for the Levites. That's what the law dictates it for. For the priests. But the Pharisees began imposing it on all the Jews. They said, it's not just that we go to the temple which is clean. We should make our homes clean too. And so we should live that way. We are little temples right here, is what they said. So the, their, their idea, their vision, was the entire nation could be set apart as holy unto the Lord. The one group of people on the planet, pure before the Lord. And it really sounds noble. You're thinking, well, that, is that a bad idea? The problem, though, is that it was a, rooted in a wrong understanding of the law, a wrong understanding of God, and a wrong understanding of how we're made clean before God. So Mark uses verses 3 and 4 here to explain all of this because he's writing in Rome, most likely. And these people would not necessarily have understood the Jewish customs, so he explains it, and we're thankful for that because it's the same for us. But he says the Pharisees, and then he says, and all the Jews... Now, that's probably hyperbole. It's probably an exaggeration. But there's an implication here. What's implied is that Jesus is changing what it means to be Jewish. Because Jewish is signified by those who wash their hands and wash their pots and their vessels and the plates. But Jesus is kind of doing something a little bit different here. So the Pharisees publicly challenge Jesus in this moment. And you have to understand that this was meant to shame Jesus. They wanted to embarrass Jesus because at this period of time, your reputation is all you have. It's the same today, right? So if we can publicly do that, then it'll change the turn of events. We can go back to the way things were. 
the Pharisees were gripping tightly to traditionalism. They were afraid, where is Jesus leading us? What is he preaching? What's the outcome here? What's the end result? Well, I need to point out that tradition is not all wrong. My cousin Madeline is here, and Madeline is obsessed with our family tradition. She hates it when any Christmas family gathering tradition gets changed. Some of you are the same way. You're like, I like traditions. Is, are traditions wrong? Well, tradition is not all wrong, but traditionalism is completely wrong. It's always wrong. Yaroslav Pelikan, I mentioned him a few weeks ago. He is uh, the former president of the American Academy of the Arts and Sciences and a Yale historian. He wrote a book about tradition, and this is what he says in it. He says, tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. It's whenever we say there's never a new way to do it. We always must do it in the one always way it's always been done. What's here we have to be mindful to allow truth to be given room to trump tradition. Traditionalism is dead. So it should not dictate the way that we view ourselves, the way that we interact with God, the way that we view God. So traditions can be helpful. Jesus knew that. He knew with the law you had to have wine skin for the wine to be put into, something to give it form. But remember, Jesus said the old wine skin won't hold the new wine. So we need new wine skin. There has to be some sort of tradition there that holds the form of what's happening. So tradition is not always bad. They can be helpful, but we have to be careful with them. David Garland said, Traditions become evil when they run counter to God's purposes expressed in the ethical commands of how to relate to others. He goes on, traditions become corrupt, he says, when people become more devoted to upholding them than obeying God's direct commands. And that was the problem with the Pharisees. They placed tradition over and above the law. So the challenge is this, to guard against the danger that we become so focused on the details, on legalism, we, we, we develop a tunnel vision of sorts. And we miss the grand design. You know, Baptists have been famously known as people of the book. We are under the authority of God's word. That's the way we're to live. We are supposed to uh, allow our understanding of the Bible to inform our thinking, to inform our practices, to inform our belief, and not the other way around. We do not allow our practices, our beliefs, our traditions to inform the way we understand the word. There's a danger there. And so that's why we do it this way. Our thinking, have to be in, our thinking has to be informed by scripture. So much pain, so many problems, so many wrong turns, so many disappointments could have been avoided if we'd have only read this book and we would have applied it, if we would have lived under the authority of God's word. That's why we have it. So read it. Apply it. Live under it, okay? It will help you in life. Jesus recognizes this challenge to his reputation here. So he takes control of the situation. And he doesn't go on the defense. He actually goes on the offense here. He responds now in verses 6 through 13 by saying, Isaiah was right. You are all a bunch of hypocrites. You are caught up on labeling others as unclean whenever your hearts are not with God. You have overemphasized the letter of the law, and you've totally missed the spirit of the law. You have become obsessed with legal jargon, and you've missed God's law to love 
You're so obsessed with the law, you've failed to love. That's what he's saying here. Tradition has replaced truth in your lives. And then in verses 14 through 16, Jesus speaks to all those gathered around. So let me read to you verses 14 through 16. After he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. While the obsession of the so-called religious leaders was surface piety or surface purity, King Jesus is concerned with the impurity inside of the man. Man's problem is not the food he eats. It's not the washing of his hands. Now, I know some of you get really caught up on this. In fact, I would venture to say that most of us spend more time on that, of thinking about what we're eating, where it comes from, how do we prepare it, what all's in that, what should we cut out, what do we leave in. You get more obsessed with keeping you know, your kids' hands clean, keeping germs out, staying away from certain things, uh, diffusing certain things to get rid of the germs, all that kind of stuff. You spend more time focused on that than the more important issue of the condition of your heart. You will clean up everything else, but you will fail to clean up your heart. The early church struggled with the dietary laws um, uh, that were given in Leviticus. They got distracted, and in fact, in Romans 14, 17, Paul had to reinforce what was important in this letter to the church at Rome. He writes, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Do any of you get more concerned about what you're eating or drinking or not eating or not drinking or what other people are eating and not eating and drinking and not drinking? Do you get more obsessed with that than you do with the spiritual condition of your heart? That's a question. But this was such a big deal in Jesus' day. In fact, he ran into it several times. It caused significant issues among his early followers, and it even created division in the early church. You have to wonder, how did we get here? That they were so focused on these dietary laws that it created splits in churches. Traditions and boundaries help to create awareness. That's what they do. They help us to create awareness. Right now, now some of you are practicing a fast in preparation for Easter. There are those in other church traditions that are more, um, uh, more focused on that. Uh, but many of you do that kind of thing. There are some of you who have done this at different times in your life where you fast from certain things to aid a spiritual hunger in your heart. So I'm going to cut certain things out. I'm not going to eat this. I'm not going to do this in order to kind of heighten this hunger in my heart for God and the things of God. That's why we do it. That's why we fast. That's what that's all about. We also have this tradition of kneeling when we pray. Have you ever noticed how uncomfortable it is to kneel and pray? And you think, why do we do that? Well, it's, it reminds us of what our position is before God. We humble ourselves in prayer to remind us we are to humble our hearts before God. So all of those ritual washings and the efforts to stay clean in the first century, it was a visual aid for the people to remind them, you are corrupt, you are unclean. And what was needed to purify themselves before approaching God. So the tradition, it really came from a noble place, right? 
We will do certain things to remind us of what we're like before God. And to do our best to remind ourselves what we need to do to come before God. Jesus didn't disagree that we are unclean before God. That's not what he's saying. He disagreed with the source of man's defilement and how to address it. We're inching closer to prom season. So I thought that I would offer some unsolicited advice for maybe some of you gentlemen that are maybe taking out a lady or anybody who's going on. I'll offer you advice. I'm an expert on this. My lovely wife of almost 14 years is right over here. And you think, how did you do that? I took her to IHOP and gave her grilled biscuits. And I said, will you be my girlfriend? And it worked out well. And so I'm a pro at this. So if you're thinking, what do I do before this prom thing? Let Let me give you some advice. Take a hot shower. Clean yourself up, brush your teeth, cover up the breath, comb your hair, do whatever you can. You, you know, you put on cologne and deodorant because you got a natural odor you need to cover up. And you put on clothing, you have somebody look at you and you say, is this right? And let them put everything in order. It's a big day. You want to think about that. You want to think about, am I doing everything I can here because I want to be my best self on a big moment like this. That's the idea of ritual washing. How do I clean myself before I stand before God? What do I do? I'm nervous when I stand before you, but what about God? Holy God, how can I be clean before him? How do I cover it all up? That's the idea here. Jesus didn't challenge the belief that we're unclean before God. There are three parts to the temple. The temple that used to stand right outside that, whole, uh, that old city there in Jerusalem. There's three parts. There's the outer court, the inner court, and the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies was the, res- the most restricted area of the temple grounds. In fact, it influences how people feel about that holy ground even today. It was here that the very presence and the face of God dwelled. So it was a dangerous thing to enter. So God gave strict instructions for entering the Holy of Holies. He said it will only happen one time a year, one day. And only by one man on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And so whenever the priest was selected who would go into the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur, he would do all kinds of things to prepare himself. A week before, he would put himself in seclusion. Because he didn't want to accidentally mess up and be unclean or defiled before God. They would make sure they served him the right food. And then the night before Yom Kippur, he would um, stay up, read the scriptures, and pray to purify his heart before he went before God. And then when the day arrived, he would wake up, he would go out and he would bathe himself. He would cleanse everything, every part of his body. And then he would put on the purest white clothing, no stain, no mark, nothing there. And then he would walk in to the Holy of Holies. With the animal, he would perform the sacrifice to cover his sins. Then he would come out. He would strip, he would cleanse himself again, wash himself head to toe. Then he would put on another Pure white clothes, no stain. Then he would go back in. He would sacrifice the animal to cover the sins of the priests. Then he would come back out and a third time strip. He would bathe, clean himself. Then he put on another set of pure, white, perfect clothing. Walk in and it's then that he would make atonement for the sins of the people. He would do this in public. People would be out there. He would be covered whenever he was cleansing himself. But people needed to see this. Because this man is your representative before God. He's going in there for your sins. And so it was so important that he did it the right way. 
It was imperative that he not have a single flaw or a speck on his body. Do you grasp how filthy you are before holy God? Do you recognize the sin in your life? We overlook our shortcomings all of the time. We ignore our terrible thoughts. We don't think twice about the things that come out of our mouth. We are obsessed with ourselves. We think the world revolves around us. We break our commitments. We let the worst things enter our mind through our eyes, through our ears, through our observation. We disregard what God calls right and wrong and own and own and own. We are filthy. And our souls are laid bare before holy, perfect, high, lofty God. He sees it all. And it's not the things that we touch that make us unclean. Today is an application. It would be appropriate to take a good look at yourself. We all think of ourselves as above average, better than the next person. But do you recognize the sin that is ever before you? That's what David said, my sin is ever before me. Cleanse it, God. So Jesus challenges the tradition defended by the Pharisees. Now let's look at the truth that Jesus teaches. Verse 17. When he had left the crowd and entered the, entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from the outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. Then he declared all foods unclean. Jesus is saying, don't you get it? Do I need to put up a chart for you to understand how digestion works? You eat, it goes in. It doesn't go into your heart. It comes out. And this is the part that my boys love. Because he's talking about potty issues right now, you know? And that's, that's like a big deal for little boys. And so they love that. So that, that's what he's talking about. That's what he's saying. You're worried about the food. It gets expelled. You don't have to worry about that. His point is the food does not go to your heart. Your food can't defile you. Eating without washing your hands does not make you impure before God. So what defiles us? It says here in verse 20. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts. Fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, and wickedness. As well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within the defiled man. Jesus is not giving an exhaustive list of sins here, but he's providing some great categorization here. After he says evil thoughts, those first six seem to kind of parallel one another. There's fornications, and there's adulteries. There's thefts, and then there's those covetous deeds. There's murders, and there's wickedness. And then he offers a final group of six sins which seem to be a lot harder to detect. These are the things that are hidden in our heart that maybe only you and God know. And they're probably a lot harder to remedy. Deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Jesus' points, point here is these things are not rooted in your hands. They come out of your heart. It's what's on the inside. You can clean up the outside. But man, those thoughts pop in your mind. Those deeds come out. It's coming from somewhere. It's coming from the heart. It's your heart that's filthy. You inherited a sinful nature. No one taught you how to act on temptation. You just knew how to do it. And your heart is defiled. So here's the bottom line. King Jesus teaches here 
that water over the hands is not enough to make a man clean before God. I took the boys down to the Colonial Life Arena. We watched the open practice, saw Duke practicing. And then we went over to the convention center for the Fan Fest this past week. Andrew and Evan waited in line and they got that skin marbling thing that you do. Maybe some of your kids went and did that. You put your hands down in these vats and they come out and it looks like your arm's been marbled. Of course, they love that. So they hated having to shower or anything that would kind of make that rub off. Uh, but it started to wear off, and on Friday evening, Andrew came from playing outside, and I said, Andrew, you're going to have to wash your hands. He said, my hands aren't dirty. I said, yes, they are. You're going to have to wash your hands. I don't want to wash. It turned into a fight over washing his hands. I mean, nobody likes to wash their hands, right? But he was okay with the clean hand. He wanted the paint. He wanted people to see that. And he wasn't ready for it to go away. Here's the point. Water will wash away paint. It will wash away dirt, but it will not spiritually purify you. Now we do all kinds of things to appear pure before the Lord. We ritually cleanse ourselves. We act like our good deeds will cover up over our bad deeds. We rationalize what we're doing. It's not that bad. Other people do worse. It's not, no, I mean, this is a normal thing that I've done. We downplay what we've done, insisting that our righteousness will glow before God. But in Isaiah 64, 6, we are reminded on our best day, in our best moment, our robes are like filthy rags before God. You think he's alluding to that priest walking into the Holy of Holies? We can never be clean enough on our own. The blood, the stain, the filth, it's still there. We can't wash it away. So what do we do? 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Him who knew no sin, no filth, no defilement. He was made sin so that us with no righteousness were giving, given Christ's righteousness. What I hope you hear me say this morning is that none of us are free from the effects of sin. You may think you have been unaffected or that you've lived a life that's kind of raised you above, better than average, whatever it might be. But we're all affected. I need a Savior, you need a Savior. And the good news is we have a Savior and it's Jesus Jesus has taken the sins of the world onto his own self. He endured the wrath that we deserved on the cross. He died there. He was buried in death. He died. He became sin so that we might have the righteousness of God. You can receive forgiveness today and be made clean. And the scripture says this gift is ours by grace. Freely. That's what that means. By faith. That means believing, believing that Jesus went to the cross for me so that I could be forgiven. His death and resurrection bought my pardon. If you've never received Jesus today, I hope that you'll respond. Now, some of you have received Jesus, and you're like the Pharisees, you've tried to keep yourself clean, but let me remind you, who's your one? Who's the one that's around you that you're committed to praying for, to sharing Christ with, to inviting to church? Don't be like the Pharisee there. You reach out to him. Our Father in God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to worship. God, now we pray that you'll just bless each person here. We pray now as we come to a time of response. God, that you would speak to our hearts and that we would respond, not ignore you, but respond to you. We pray especially for those today that don't know you, that today they may commit their life to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Today, if you don't know Jesus, if you're trying to look pure before him, let me tell you, don't stop the doing and start the receiving. We, we receive by simply believing and receiving Jesus.
and we're made children of God. If you have a commitment to make like that, we'll have folks down front. We'd love to greet you and share with you from God's word how you can respond to the gospel. Some of you need to make a decision to join the church, to lay roots here, maybe to follow in believer's baptism or some other reason. I'm going to invite you to stand as the choir sings, you respond. didn't get to report last week, but I uh, wanted to let you know we try to put that monthly update in the bulletin. And uh, the good news is, or the great news actually, is that uh, uh, you've been very faithful and God has just really blessed the giving. We had an incredible, probably the best February we've had in years and years and years. So, so thankful to each of us because it takes everybody giving. Uh, this is our God, uh, you know, God's church and we're members of it, so we're to support it. And so just want to encourage you to continue doing that. But I wanted to give you that report. Uh, on that note, I also introduce and have Buster and Angie Whitlock stand up. And I think their daughter's with them. But Buster is um, our, he just started on Monday as the Minister of Administration. And we're thrilled to have Buster and Angie here. Y'all make them feel welcome. And so now we will just see the giving just keep going because of all his hard work up there. So. Anyways, I'm thrilled that you're here, and uh, I'm especially glad that folks from Metafield are here, both the workers and the children. That's got a place that's really near and dear to my heart, and uh, I think they're going to have a lunch today, and we're thrilled that y'all would join us today. I'm going to invite you to stand, and uh, we're going to be dismissed. If you're a college student, we have free lunch for you in 1420. If you have a prayer need, our deacons down here would love to pray with you. Our Father, we thank you so much for allowing us to be here together. And God, we do just declare you as a holy God. And we're so thankful for the grace that you cover us with because of the shed blood of Jesus. Now, Father, help us to live, live in that resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection power. It's in Christ's name that we pray.